LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Courtney Brown of the Farsight Institute who joins us to discuss remote viewing and what it is revealing about the fundamental nature of consciousness and reality. The discoveries of quantum physics have been rewriting what we think we know about life, the universe and everything. The realms being revealed by remote viewing are taking us even further down the rabbit hole where the meaning of time, space and matter dissolve and all physical reality may be merely an artifact of observation. Hello and welcome, Courtney, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, I'm very pleased to be here, Greg. I'm very honored that you invited me, and I thank you very much. Now, today, Courtney, we're going to discuss your work with the Farsight Institute and remote viewing. Um, before we dive into that, perhaps you could just give listeners a little bit of personal background, um, how you came to be doing this work, and for those who are new to the subject, just briefly what remote viewing is. Oh, sure. Well... Remote viewing is a mental procedure. It's a mental process. And in the old days, people used to call it psychic, but we don't use that anymore because we understand the process much better. Remote viewing came out of a U.S. military program that was funded up until 1995 in November. And it was a, a program where some very gifted psychics figured out what their minds were doing when they were actually perceiving things and transferring perceptual information across time and space. And they started to teach people in the U.S. military in one official program and then also in an unofficial movement. The official program was in the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA. And the unofficial movement was in Special Forces Intelligence. And the unofficial movement later became known as the First Earth Battalion, and that was featured in the movie uh, Men Who Stare at Goats. And the 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 official version, the official program, was in the DIA, and they both had intellectual traditions that were different. The DIA program was guided intellectually by Ingo Swan, the late Ingo Swan, who was an artist, and he basically taught people in the military under a program that was funded both by the Defense Intelligence Agency and the CIA. And they were using it for espionage purposes. The Special Forces Intelligence, pro, uh, not unofficial program, it was, it was really a movement, had its intellectual heritage uh, started with Dr. Richard Ireland. So two different sets of procedures were, were developed. When the public became aware of the remote viewing program, it was closed down, considered an embarrassment, and they 
um, shut it down and said, don't know how it happened and it won't happen again. And they immediately started up another one that's even much bigger now than the old one was. That's my understanding. But And if that ever comes public, then they'll shut that the one, that one down and say, I don't know how it happened, then they'll start up another one. So, so remote viewing uh, is actively pursued in the military. Now, when I became aware of the military program in the early 90s, I, I said, basically, I'm, a, I'm an academic, I'm a mathematician that works in a social science program at, um, at a major university in the United States. And I basically said, if this is true, I'm going to pursue this no matter what, because this is very interesting. And I was talking with people that were, you know, I was in the same room with people, two-star generals, colonels, on down. <laughs> Uh, and it, you know, they were talking about it like the price of bread, and discussing the entire program and how it works and so on. And so that was my initial introduction to it. So after uh, being exposed to the military version of it, I actually decided that I, I didn't, I didn't think the program, the procedures went far enough, and so. I ended up developing uh, much more complicated or much more uh, involved procedures. And some people learn those as well. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, I started, I, I wrote a number of books on remote viewing, and I'm now the, the leading, I can say that unambiguously, the leading, and it's a, sort of a joke, so <laughs> you'll hear. I am the leading scholar in the subject of remote viewing as it is done as it is performed using these structured data collection methodologies that were developed by the US military or methodologies that are derivative of those procedures. And the reason I say it's a bit of a joke is because I am the only scholar um, in the, that studies these things, I, only scholar in an academic setting anywhere. It's considered, uh, in the beginning, when I first published in it, people thought I was deluded. At the current time, it's no longer that way. It's become very respectable. And although it's not taught in any university setting, I am invited to prestigious universities all over the place to give talks on the subject of remote viewing. It's very, it's it's very, it's very in topic among people, and the no one's laughing anymore. Nobody is laughing anymore. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. There are still aspects of the phenomenon we don't understand. But we understand enough of it now that the giggle factor is completely gone and the reliability and the use is very high. I am the director now of the Farsight Institute, that's F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T, like seeingfar.org because we're a nonprofit educational and research institute. And uh, we have you know, people who were in the military programs actually on our board of directors. So we're sort of, we're, we're very multi-methodology people who participate who do the Hawaii Remote Viewers Guild procedures, which are uh, traced back to the Special Forces Intelligence Movement, and the uh, CRV procedures, which are traced back to the DIA uh, official program, and also people that use the methodologies that are derivative of those, including the ones that I helped develop. Uh, with regard to SRV, which is scientific remote viewing. Anyway, I am the, the director of the institute, and we are the, uh, the only, I was going to say the largest, but I'll qualify it first by saying the only, but also the largest venue for scientific 
projects, especially public experiments and public demonstrations of this remote viewing process. We've done many projects and we had one that just completed on June 1st, very interesting. And uh, when people really want to know about remote viewing, they basically eventually end up uh, at Farsight because that's where all these scientific projects are. They may, they, many people teach remote viewing. We actually don't teach it at the university. I mean, at, I'm sorry, at the, at the institute. Although we're probably going to start that up again. We mostly just do uh, projects. However, people that work or, or do or volunteer at the institute do, in fact, uh, teach remote viewing. So there are many people that teach it. But our place is as a scientific venue for these things. We actually are going to be starting up international training pretty soon, actually. I shouldn't have said we don't teach because we do um, teach for free uh, advanced courses in remote viewing and we're going to be starting up training in Africa very soon in some British colonies or former colonies, I should say, uh, like such as Kenya. And uh, we're going to be starting that up actually sometime this year. And of course, training will be free. Now, when I've spoken to people about remote viewing, uh, in general, they've got no idea what it is. They've never even heard of the term. So how does it relate to other psychic abilities, for example, like telepathy, which a lot of people will have heard of? Yeah, it's structured. That's the real big difference. It's structured so the accuracy is much higher. So let me just explain what happens with remote viewing. With remote viewing, people go into a room. Typically, under ideal circumstances, they'd go into a room that's specially designed with a desk in the middle of the room pointed towards a corner, not flat up against the wall. And all recording equipment would be behind the viewers so that they don't see anything. The room would be in a bland colors, uh, no pictures on the wall, things like that. And on the table in the center of the room, there'd be a stack of paper and a pen, and that's it. And remote viewers are told to go in there and remote view a target. A target is a the thing they're supposed to perceive. Now, remote viewing only works if the remote viewers have absolutely no knowledge of the target whatsoever, meaning you cannot go up to someone and say, I want you to remote view the Eiffel Tower. The memory and fantasy, imagination of just the knowledge that it's the Eiffel Tower would intervene and no remote viewing would take place. So the conscious mind would take over. So the non-physical component of all of us is used for this perceptual process. And the perceptual process results in images, all the senses actually, hearing, touch, sight, taste, and smell, but focusing on the visual stuff, on images that are conveyed to the remote viewer that the remote viewer perceives and writes these things down. And at the end of an hour, there's say 10 to 20 pages of detailed data, both words and images that describe the target. And again, it's done under totally blind conditions. The remote viewer cannot have any knowledge of what it is that they're supposed to perceive if the procedure is to work. So they would basically go in with no information other than there is a target, period, nothing else. They come out an hour later, 10 to 20 pages of detailed data describing that thing. And, is a, and the target is a, per, is a place or an event with or without people and the 10 or 20 pages is supposed to describe it in detail. And there are some people who are really, really good at the use of these procedures now. Now that we understand them uh, better, the procedures are more refined and the use of the procedures are more refined. And so basically that's what it is. Uh, a psychic, a natural psychic, doesn't work under blind conditions typically. And usually 
just intuitively figuring out what to do, sort of their own method, and there's no real structure to it. So they're sometimes getting some information, and anecdotally those become sort of big stories uh, for telling as the years go by. But it's very inconsistent and generally speaking of very low quality. You can't do anything with it. So remote viewing is different because it's got that, it's got a much higher level of structure and you can actually evaluate the data such that you can get a, a, a good understanding of the accuracy rate. So the accuracy can be extraordinarily high when you're dealing with very competent remote viewers with a experimental design that's well structured. If you have an experimental design that's poorly structured, which happens a lot, then the accuracy goes way down even with a good remote viewer. But when everything's working properly, you can get really scary good descriptions of the target. And the target can be any place or event with or without people anywhere in time, past, present, and future. Now, there's a um, perception that um, psychic abilities are extremely special and very rare. But in fact, this is basically something that we we can all do. In fact, we may sometimes do without realizing it almost. It's, it's an, an innate ability. It's, it's absolutely an innate ability. And the reason that the military people wanted to do it is it could be taught to people who had security clearances. They didn't want to have to rely on natural psychics, both because of the reliability was very low, but also because those people didn't have security clearances. So they wanted to teach people down the hall how to do this, and that's why they did it. Now, I should mention, this is very important, that the Farsight Institute is totally civilian. I'm civilian, so we're the leading civilian venue anywhere for the for scientific studies dealing with remote viewing, and especially public experiments. Uh, we have a lot of experiments and a lot of things that were done uh, over, the, over, the, over a great many years. And I would like to actually put in a plug to all of your listeners, if you don't mind, we have a free newsletter. Because we're a science, a science organization that doesn't buy any advertising space, we have no way to tell people what we're doing other than our free newsletter. So if you go to our website, which is a huge website, uh, www.farsight.org, F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T, like seeing far, .org, because we're a nonprofit, at the bottom of the nav bar, uh, on the left, you'll see a big banner there that says, you know, sign up for our free newsletter. We very rarely send them out. However, we do have two really important announcements that are going to be going out in June this month. And so uh, for those people who want to know about what we do, it's free. We never go out the email addresses to anybody for any reason. So we never spam you. And um, it's the only way to really find out what we're doing. And we have two really important things that are going out this month. So anyway, I really strongly encourage your listeners to sign up for the free newsletter uh, to sort of keep touch with what we do do. It takes us a long time to do a project, so we don't send out a lot of emails in between that. We just wait till we finish a project and then we announce it. And uh, the newsletter is really the only place to get that. Now, um, cutting-edge science, uh, in particular quantum physics, is demonstrating that really we, and all of reality in fact, but certainly we are more than just physical or biological machines, but there's still a lot of scientific skepticism around uh, some of the new science, in particular, you know, 
what your work with remote viewing um, and this I suppose is to be expected with mainstream scientists you know any phenomenon that's not readily measured observed or quantified they sometimes have a problem with it Um, and in presenting your remote viewing evidence you've discussed how in particular the scientific peer review process um, has affected that and also of course the background to this is that spurious claim that, uh, was it um, Carl Sagan that made it? Uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Actually, that's a good point, Greg, if you don't mind me talking about Carl. Carl Sagan's, Carl Sagan's comment, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof or evidence, is a fraudulent statement that has nothing to do with science. Let me explain why. All of science is based on evidence, and most of all of science is based on statistical evidence. So with everything, we make observations and then we make predictions based on theories that we've gotten from these observations. And then, so, so we have a theory and we have an experiment and then we have results. We have conventions within science to accept results at certain levels of statistical certainty. And normally for science, it's the so-called alpha level of 0.05, which means there's got to be a 5% chance of being wrong. Now, when CDC, for example, published its major study saying that mercury-based or mercury-laced vaccines did not cause uh, childhood autism, they based that on a study that had a 5% level of uh, of being wrong. So they used the 0.05 level. Now, that was an important issue, still is an important issue to a lot of people. And I'm not commenting on whether the CDC was correct or incorrect with regard to the study, but on such an important issue, they used the 5% level. Now, when Carl Sagan comes in and says, when the late Carl Sagan comes in and says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, what he's basically saying is he's going to move the benchmark to whatever he wants. You can't do that in science. So if you got a 5% chance of being wrong for the mercury in the vaccines issue with regard to autism, well, with other issues that he doesn't like, for example, uh, extra, uh, extraterrestrial life or, or the existence of, of psi phenomena, PS, PSI phenomena, and that's, we don't use the word psychic anymore, but the scientific term for non-physical perception we call PSI, the existence of psi or remote viewing, uh, he says, you know, it requires extraordinary proof. That means you move it back to a more higher level of statistical evidence. So instead of the 0.05 level, you go to the 0.01 level, for example. Well, the extent remote viewing literature in the scientific literature has gone all the way back to the, you know, to the one out of 100,000, <laughs> I mean, 0. 0.00001. We've, there's no shortage of statistical robustness in psi experiments. And no matter what level of statistical robustness you give them, they're always quoting Carl Sagan and saying, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. But, you know, there's no level of extraordinary, there's no level of, there's no level of acceptable evidence for those people. So that's not science. That's not science at all. Science is based on a set of procedures and, you know, come what may, you, you follow what those procedures result in. 
and the the idea of changing the goalposts if you don't like the result it's uh, it goes from science to witchcraft i mean it's just not it's not a, a reputable means of doing research let me give you an example of how bias does come in until 1995 virtually all of astronomy and mainstream science vigorously vigorously argued that planets would not form around other stars that our solar system was an anomaly that the conditions for planets forming around other stars is so extraordinary that it just basically didn't happen and they weren't arguing just like in our neighborhood of the galaxy they were all they were arguing this for the entire universe and this is historically exactly what happened now if you look at one of the recent issues of science magazine put out by the AAAS they have an article in there about how 1995 was a breakthrough year because they discovered the first planet around a star outside of our own solar system and they say, they introduced that by saying we knew they were out there we just needed evidence well that's full of crap they they didn't know they were out there they were arguing ferociously that there aren't any planets out there and now we're discovering multiple planets every week <laughs> made of them earth size within the habitable zone i mean they're just all over the place now scientists are saying they're ubiquitous but 1995 was not very far away greg so what we have here is a bunch of scientists that are theologically biased they didn't want to recognize that there could be planets everywhere because the very next question is if there's planets out there there's life out there and if there's life out there there's there's you know we're not the king king of the mountain anymore we're just who we are and so it really is an emotional psychological thing that you're dealing with science you're not dealing with a strictly objective science and if you if you look at other fields this is not limited to just a field of psi phenomena or extraterrestrial life it's affecting all phenomena for example in archaeology there is tremendous amount of evidence that suggests that anatomically correct anatomically modern humans date back millions of years all of that has been suppressed in the archaeological in the archaeological literature people have lost their their jobs people have lost their their, their positions uh, they've been you know having had all types of troubles this has been detailed for example in in Michael Cremo's book Forbidden Archaeology which is a huge fat book extremely well documented about archaeological findings that are simply you know pushed out of the way basically scientists are there to connect the dots but scientists don't accept all of the evidence so they don't accept all of the dots so what they end up doing is they connect the dots that they want to connect and pretend that the other dots don't exist so it's it's not a fair shot so what we have in tremendous amounts in science is a very biased view and you can bet your last dollar that every time you go 50 years the stuff you're taught in classes and the universities are just going to be trash thrown out and it'll be different for example if you went back uh to the late 1800s you would have found max planck saying things like we basically discovered everything we only have to understand the the decimal points now just accuracy is the issue physics is not really a big a big a big industry a big science right now because we're just dealing with accuracy we understand everything that was max planck now that was before quantum mechanics that was before einstein's relativity theory that was before, so basically what we have is 
academic scientists who, as Max Planck correctly noted, advance by generational replacement. The older scientists literally have to retire and die off, and the younger ones with more modern ideas come in, and they become fossilized and have to re be replaced as well. And it just so this is very long delay. And people like Carl Sagan are just very typical of scientists who have their feet dug into the ground and are very resistant to these new ideas because these, these new ideas would challenge everything that they've built their entire career on. For example, with regard to how psi phenomena could work, how could remote viewing even work? Well, what you're doing is transferring information across both time and space. According to both Newtonian and relativistic physics, that is simply not possible. You can't go backward in time and transfer information or go forward in time and transfer information. And also, you cannot transfer information faster than the speed of light. You see, physicists have long known that there is no real difference between information and physical. A better way to put it is to say information is physical. Basically, they've known this since 1948 with the work of Norbert Weiner, and uh, that's W-I-E-N-E-R, and Claude Shannon, who independently worked on this idea. And more recently, they've actually had laboratory experiments that have, in fact, verified when you have information and you destroy the information, you replace it with chaos, randomness, energy is released, heat is released. So people often think of information as just stuff that we know, but it's actually much more than that. It's anything that's organized. So when you have information and you destroy that information, you get energy that's released. Now, E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light. The speed of light squared is just a constant. So you're basically just using it as a scaling factor. So you're saying energy equals mass. Well, if when information is released, you have energy, energy equals mass, so if we're talking about transferring perceptual information across time and space way beyond, you know, instantaneously, then you're talking about a violation of, of even relativistic physics because you're saying that you're transferring energy, which is equivalent to mass, across time and space. And mainstream physics that have the paradigms of relativistic physics are simply not able to absorb that. They can't accept that. So what they do is they limit the data. They eliminate the data. They say... We're not going to look at those dots. We're going to connect the dots that we want to connect up. Now, there's nothing wrong with Newtonian or relativistic physics. They are correct. They're just not the limit. It's not the bottom line. They work within a subset of measurable reality. But you cannot understand the entire thing if you just limit it to what they're willing to look at. They're limiting the observations. So what Carl Sagan really did was violate one of the most precious principles of science, which is to keep an open mind and look at what the data say and apply the same principles regardless of whether you personally are really upset with the results. Use the same level of statistical and scientific process uh, and levels of acceptance that you use on all other things. What would a skeptical scientist say to then to the, the military use of remote viewing? Because the military don't tend to pursue things that don't work out. I mean, if you look at DARPA's projects, for example, I mean, a bunch of those are uh, at the face of it are seem, you know, fantasy science fiction, and yet they're they're pursuing them because they believe there's something there. Well, this is this is very clear. I work with these. Uh, I've, I've I've been interacting with these military types for a very long time, and one of the things that's really clear is 
they're really both frustrated and amazed with a lot of the scientists that are in the mainstream because they see a lot of things that are actually working and the scientists are screaming, you know, this is impossible, it can't work. And then, so what happens is with the military people who are generally very practical, they just simply stop working with those scientists or they find a few scientists who are willing to work in black programs uh, that are well-funded just off the record. And then they have uh, other relationships where they have mainstream scientists who are basically leaving schizophrenic lives where in the mainstream they, they do one set of things and act like they're believing in a certain set of principles and then they do other work for the military which goes off in a completely different direction and so they they have these sort of different realms different different sort of separate lives that they live so that also happens and then they get into the situation where situation where the military actually becomes an arm of uh, the government and interests that don't want certain information out because certain interests would lose something that they have and so then there becomes an interest in keeping the information contained and then sometimes the military exploits academics uses academics to uh, both disrupt people who are actually trying to uh, discover things in different realms and in a public way but also to control what the public knows in fact the the coming out of the remote viewing project was designed to contain the remote viewing field within the bookstore new age community and the fringe community they didn't want it in the mainstream so they felt it was going to come out anyway and rather than it to pop out in mainstream science they wanted it to come out and sort of stay marginalized as a way of sort of containing it so sometimes the best way to contain something is to release it and then to manage it rather than to try to hold it back if it's going to be coming out anyway. Now, remote viewing is part of a body of new science that's, that's demonstrating that our consciousness extends beyond our brains. In fact, it probably originates beyond our brains. And it seems to be a universal field connecting everything. That seems to be the, the fundamental realization. Yeah, we actually understand a lot more now about the physics of remote viewing, the physics of how this actually works. The big problem Greg, is that we identify with our physical bodies so that we say, I have a soul, or I hope I have a soul. But that's like so screwed up. It's so backwards. We, you know, we are our souls, meaning it's, it's not that you have a soul, but you are the soul and you have a body. So the idea is that the soul is the real you and the body is the not real you. But we reverse it. We become identified with the bodies and then we try to see if we have a soul. But it's like really totally backwards. What basically we know now is that nothing exists in the universe except energy. There's no such thing as mass. Now, some physicists, the older you get, the more you'll have them reacting to that statement. And some physicists will say, what do you mean there's no such thing as mass? We have mass all the time. We measure mass. We measure mass in all types of ways. But if you take mass like the desk that you're looking at or the chair you're looking at or the computer screen or the radio or whatever, and you burrow into it, all you find is uh, molecules and atoms. And then you burrow into those, you find subatomic particles. And you burrow into those, you find empty space and eventually you get point sources and eventually you just get wave packets. And on the quantum world, that's what you're dealing with now, you have nothing that exists except as frequencies. And when frequencies interact among themselves, 
they interact in processes, basically only two processes. They're called processes of interference, and there's both constructive interference and destructive interference. And basically what that is, is when the waves and the troughs of various frequencies interact to produce what's called a wave packet. Now, how it actually works is if you go up to a piano and you bang on middle C, and then you bang on the B right next to middle C, well, what you'll hear is what they call a beat frequency. The two frequencies of the B and the C will interact and produce a wah, 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 a beat frequency. Well, that's the processes of destructive and constructive interference sort of blending together. When you have a bunch of frequencies blending together, it's the ones that are near each other that really produce the biggest impact. So, for example, if you hit middle C and then hit the highest B on the keyboard, ding! There will be constructive and destructive interference between those two, but it's nothing to write home about. It's essentially you can ignore it. So the frequencies that are the closest together interfere with each other the most. And when they interfere and they, and they uh, produce uh, sort of a, a coherent interference, they produce what's called a wave packet. And a wave packet essentially is a, a blip or a distortion in the fabric of reality. And what it is is these fabric, these, these wave packets, they, ex they essentially extend throughout all of time and space, but they essentially are, they're also localized uh, in, in terms of most of where they exist. And physicists say the photon or the electron or the neutron or whatever they're looking is actually inside that wave packet. But it stays as just a bunch of energy frequencies that are interacting until it is observed. And then it becomes a solid thing. Well, that's really ridiculous, of course, but that's the so-called Copenhagen interpretation, and it's it's part of the standard. It's it's also part of the the standard view of quantum mechanics. But the basic idea is it requires some type of a transformation with an external mechanism to actually produce a solid, real thing out of a bunch of non-real, non-solid frequency things, and that was. That's, a, that's been a theoretical issue for a very long time. Einstein used to mock his quantum mechanics colleagues by saying, do you actually think the moon wouldn't be there if I didn't look at it? <laughs> he didn't really understand, but the actual issue is that nothing is there unless it's looked at in some way. But it's not that it physically doesn't exist, but that everything that's physical has to enter into a state of what they call superposition or a state of coexistence with all the things that are being observed. And so the real challenge to this worldview came around in 1957 with a physicist named Hugh Everett. He studied under John Wheeler at Princeton. And he devised an interpretation of quantum mechanics that is now called the other world's interpretation. And this other world's interpretation was basically saying that and it was an interpretation based on a famous experiment known as a two-slit experiment that basically said that there are other realms that we do not see. And in a frequency level, they are out of sync with us. And these other realms produce interactions with all of us that we simply don't see. But they do manifest at some sort of future time when you're observing something, there's evidence that's sort of left over of that. And this other realms or other, other worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics was widely ridiculed at the time. But beginning around 1970, the turnaround started. And now 
among young uh, professors, young graduate students in physics worldwide, it's a rage. I mean, it's finally got his time. It's finally got his time. People are not really flocking to the Copenhagen or the standard interpretation of quantum mechanics. They're really looking towards this stuff that Hugh Everett started back in 1957. It's finally, it's made its day. Because it explains so much of the phenomena that we now see, including the remote viewing phenomenon. So basically what happens is that the human brain is in essence a very advanced, highly sophisticated hologram generator. That there's frequencies that exist of all possible things and the human brain selects out the frequencies that it wants to look at and it produces the reality that we see. And this hologram generator is very much like a radio that you use to tune into a certain frequency. So if you're tuning into your favorite station on the radio, you want to get good reception. And that radio is perfectly designed to pick up that frequency for your favorite station. And you're not even aware that there are other stations broadcasting at other frequencies because that radio is just tuning into your favorite frequency. You don't even know what's going on in the other frequencies. Well, the hologram generator of the brain is really good at that. It's really, really good at that. It screens out all other frequencies all other interactions, all other realities that are just as real as ours, and it focuses you on just one. And the illusion is so convincing that it has fooled mainstream physicists for hundreds of years. <laughs> and so it's only now that we're starting to understand this. And so what remote viewers are is they are people who train extensively for a very long period of time in getting their brains to shift frequencies, getting their brains to focus in on things that their brains normally exclude. So what we have is we've developed a set of procedures that allow the brain to dial somewhere else on the dial, to pick up other things, and to see what's going on elsewhere at other frequencies. And so absolutely everything that exists anywhere is defined in terms of frequencies. If you shift the perceptual receiving frequencies that you're getting in the brain, those other things can be perceived. So you see the, and so you're not actually traveling beyond the speed of light. You're not traveling anywhere when you're remote viewing. You're just shifting your frequencies that are being allowed in to the brain and you're entering into a, what the physicist would call a state of superposition with that other place and thus perceiving what's going on at that other place. And that's how it actually works. This will, of course, uh, spiral out into a whole level of new technology in the future. Because if our brains can do it, obviously machines will be able to do this. And it will revolutionize travel uh, across interstellar space, for example. Because, you know, once we master what this is actually going, what's actually happening, a, a completely new realm of physics will, will emerge. That concludes part one of our interview with Courtney Brown. Be sure to tune in next time for part two. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, legalizefreedom.com, that's legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs on many equally interesting and important topics. The soul is not the shadow of the body. The body is the shadow of the soul. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.